Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome to the New Books and Political Science podcast. My name is Heath Brown, and today I'll be talking to Sally Nuama, who is the author of How Girls Learn. Uh, the book is published by Harvard University Press in 2019, and I have the real pleasure to have Sally on the phone with me today. Sally, how are you doing? I'm good. Thank you so much for having me. Um, I'm really excited to talk about my book, How Girls Achieve. Yeah, I I misspoke in in, uh, uh, describing the title of the book. It's How Girls Achieve, not How Girls Learn. Uh, But I understand the first chapter is Let Girls Learn, so I understand the challenge there. <laughs> yeah, and I and I uh you uh shared a copy of the book and I have read it and enjoyed it for a number of reasons uh uh, uh for for what you've said, for how personally you've written this and and how interesting the findings of the book are. Before we get to all of that, uh maybe you can just share a little bit about yourself. Uh sure. So, um I am a assistant professor at Duke University um at the Stanford School of Public Policy. Uh, my work is really interested in uh, sort of the role of schools as public institutions that can potentially provide access to um, young people, especially those most marginalized, um, to like political equity. Um, I look at sort of people's relationships with the government um, and politics and the policies in which the government sort of you know, implements and how that shapes their valuations of government, their trust in government, their beliefs in institutions, and their ability to access political equity. Um, that work has been done in Chicago and Philadelphia, but also internationally in Ghana and South Africa. Um, and outside of my sort of academic research, I'm really involved in policy, specifically around girls and education. Um, I have a small organization that provides scholarships for girls who are the first in families to go to college. I also have a film that documents girls who are striving uh, to achieve um, a higher education as the first in their families. Um, and so my research really tries to bring those things that I've engaged with on the ground um, to those who, you know, care about this work in more academic circles. Yeah. In addition to all of that, you're also a colonial, I am. <laughs> uh, which is something that, that we have we have in common. So let's talk about this book. It's connected to all of these different facets of your, of your life, really. Uh, so broadly speaking, uh, your book is about education policy but more specifically about uh, achievement and and the achievement of girls. Uh, You note at the start of the book that globally 130 million girls are not in school. Um, How do you think about this as a policy problem? You know, what this, you know, seems like such a problem, but but how is you a scholar of this? What is so worrisome about this statistic and, and others, other statistics about girls' achievement? What, how do you think about this? 
Yeah, I mean, I think from the beginning, um, it's important to think about uh, why education is important. Um, and for me, uh, it's this idea that um, there's no other institution I could think of that's more probable for improving the life chances of the most disadvantaged than public schools. Uh, they're sort of a main vehicle for accessing economic, social, political equity. Um, and so when young people, especially those who are marginalized, which oftentimes is girls, um, specifically girls of color, who come from poor economic backgrounds, not having access to an institution that is fundamental for actually improving their chances of having political or social economic equity, then I think that that becomes an, an important problem for them, for the girls themselves, but also the nation, uh, right? Um, we know that when girls are able to get access to school as mothers and more likely to immunize their children, if they so choose to be a mother, uh, they're less likely to contract HIV and AIDS. Uh, they're able to, um, you know, slow down, you know, pregnancy in terms of early child pregnancies. Um, they uh, contribute to the development of countries, right? So for women and girls themselves, their education can enable them to have access uh, to a world in which there's so much to offer. Uh, but even for the countries in which these girls sit, um, they can also improve to the, you know, the public health as well as the economic development. So those are some of the theoretical reasons as well as practical reasons why having, you know, over 130 million girls um, not in school becomes a really a personal and a public problem. But I see this book as kind of uh, doing the part two <laughs> of that work. Um, it's sort of thinking about what does it mean when you do get access um, and uh, and how do we ensure that the institutions that these girls who get access, um, you know, the, the girls that get access to these institutions, how do we ensure that those institutions are actually safe and equitable places? Um, and that's sort of where this book begins. Yeah, you also write at the start of the book um, that the way you think about it, and I quote, achievement is a, a, as a measure not only of academic performance, but also the absence of damage from experiences with learning. Uh, what are the consequences of taking this approach to achievement as opposed to some of the more conventional approaches that we might know about? Yeah, I'm really glad you asked that question because a book that's called How Girls Achieve immediately makes people think about academic performance and traditional measures of achievement. Um, and I do want to go beyond that. Um, so if we think about traditionally what achievement is um, thought of as or measured or defined, um, it's typically related to academic grades um, or performance measures related to test scores um, or maybe even just the, the ability to enter a higher educational institution such as you know, George Washington University or Harvard University, those become measures of success or measures of achievement. So for those of us who are really interested in getting girls access to school, the ability to enter school and to do well while there um, or to attain grades that are equivalent uh, to boys, right, is then therefore considered achievement or considered a success. Uh, what this does not account for is the fact that the institutions in which many of these girls get access to sort of weren't created with them in mind. Um, this means that their physical and social structure uh, may actually be violent toward those girls. That means that those institutions could still be sexist toward those girls. Um, and what that creates is an inequitable experience while attaining achievement. Um, but because traditional measures of achievement don't account for the actual experience of going to vet school or the actual experience of being in an environment that's probably sexist or where they experience 
sexual abuse um, or schools that don't have bathrooms. We could talk more about that um, later uh, because it's not accounted for. As long as those girls get access and they do well academically, it's considered a policy success or the perceptions that they have achieved. Um, and I think that we have to think about achievement in a more holistic way that says that this school isn't a success. These girls haven't achieved if they've endured trauma in the process. Um, and, you know, thinking about achievement in a more holistic way, I think, helps us to ensure that we can actually not reward institutions that don't ensure that they mitigate against those in unequal costs. Now, thinking about this, and, and you refer to some of what you just described as institutional sexism, um, you, and I don't know if you've coined the term, but you use the term feminist schools throughout the book. Um, and this is one that, that um, I think probably needs a definition. So what do you mean by a feminist school and, and how does it fit into uh, the, the kinds of problems, uh, the multifaceted problems that you just described? Yes. Yeah, so I see feminist schools uh, to start as recognizing that institutions weren't built with um, girls in mind. Uh, and what they seek to do is to ensure that um, the burdens to attaining success are shared fairly. Um, and that requires these institutions to be anti-sexist, anti-racist, um, and thus equitable institutions from their built-in structure to their policies. Uh, so an example would be an institution that um, actually thinks about, okay, how does our policies impact some groups differently than others? So the example that I like to give um, that's more tangible and that I present early on in the book is, for example, bathrooms. Many schools, for example, in Ghana, were created without bathrooms because they weren't created, again, with girls in mind. So only 40% of the schools in Ghana were built with bathrooms. Only 60% of the schools in South Africa were built with bathrooms. So once a month, when girls were on their period, even though they had access to these schools, they weren't attending school um, during that point. Um, and so they would miss about six days a month. Um, and over the course of the year, right, that's a lot of time. Uh, and this is something that, you know, although they've gotten access to school and although some girls will be successful regardless of that experience, that is an inequitable experience that they're having while attaining that achievement that I think needs to be addressed. And I think feminist schools recognize that those are um, inequitable experiences that can occur and understand that it's important for those things to be addressed to ensure that people are sharing burdens as fairly as possible um, and that um, these institutions are understanding sort of that schools aren't just about, um, aren't sort of, aren't, a, aren't neutral spaces, uh, that they're political spaces. Um, and when we recognize that, we work to ensure that um, these institutions are places where people can uh, succeed fairly and equitably, but also leave these places and try to bring some of that change into the actual world. Um, and so I see feminist institutions as just recognizing the politics of the ways in which uh, people learn, um, that these institutions aren't naturally safe or equitable just because they're academically successful and they try to mitigate against those inequalities. Now, as, as you've mentioned, you study these, these um, concepts in three different settings, South Africa, Ghana, and the United States, uh, because I am uh, the most interested in Ghana. Uh, I wanted to start there. Uh, would you tell us about Mary Mensah, uh, who she is, uh, and, and 
what she has to do with these ideas of uh, feminist schools and, and girls' achievement. Yeah, so Mary Mensa is the very first person uh, that I met uh, when I uh, returned to Ghana um, as a person who was interested in not just visiting there, but actually studying uh, the country. Um, and she stood out because, you know, here was a woman who was the head of a school that previously had been led by males for the past 60 years. Um, she was essentially the first woman to head the school. Um, she headed a school that, for all intents and purposes, is not considered to be a um, high quality school or a school that people are necessarily um, in line to attend. Uh, and while she was uh, working at the school, the school had a very low enrollment in terms of girls, especially when she first got there. Um, and her approach to this institution was one in which she fully recognized the importance of changing this institution so that it was actually more accessible and equitable toward women and girls. And so she did sort of the thing that I'm describing when I talk about like creating a feminist institution. She looked at the policies that were in place. For example, the fact that historically only boys gave the speech for speech and prize day. There was no reason for that to be the case, but that's just how it had been. Right. And so she intentionally put a woman in that position. Um, she assessed the policies of the school um, and then thought, in what way can I intervene and flip this so that it could actually enable the girls that are working here or, excuse me, that are attending school here to be able to, you know, enjoy some of the same opportunities. Um, and if you think specifically about things that are even more, I think, um, important and probably even more experienced by girls, you know, sexual abuse and harassment, there were uh, teachers um, in uh Ghana, and we see this in the U.S. as well. I can talk about Chicago, for example, in New York, uh, where we see similar abuses occur, where essentially you still have male teachers, or the fact that girls go to a school with, um, you know, male peers, um, and they experience high levels of sexual abuse, um, you know, and rape, uh, and uh, and there's no clear policy or program or counseling centers in place to help students, you know talk about what they're going through, as well as uh, be able to have a place to, you know, recover. Um, and she recognized that in a context, in an environment where that isn't um, a popular notion and where there's not as many resources to respond to that, she basically empowered her students to uh, report sexual abuse. And when they did, she made sure those people were removed. Um, so I use a term in the book called SCG, sexually transmitted grades, right? Um, this idea that people are expected to um, provide sexual favors in exchange for accurate reporting of their grades in some of these contexts. Um, and she is aware of that. And she put something in place so that girls could report when they were being propositioned. Um, and she made sure that those people were removed. Um, and I think that's what it means to go into a place that historically is from a, um, a particular kind of culture, a patriarchal one, and be intentional about changing the policies that enable that to persist. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. 
That's shopify.com slash system. Now, one of the things that I was thinking about is, is in, in when you were writing this book, um, whether you got feedback or questions from people about whether you were suggesting or advocating for or advocating against single sex schools, um, that is girls only schools. How does that idea, which, which, um, in some places, including Ghana has, has some, um, favor. How do those two ideas intersect, um, in your thinking about feminist schools, uh, and, and thinking about the, the broader idea of girls achievement? Yeah. Um, I often get questions from people who, who've read, um, some aspects of the book about, well, you know, aren't you just proposing like an all girls school or isn't this easier to be, to facilitate at an all girls school? Um, and on the other hand, I got people who attended all girls school that was like, yes, because I attended all girls school, my school was a feminist school. (laughs) You know, we weren't, um, in a environment where people made us feel like we, um, couldn't achieve or we weren't in an environment where we were being tracked into arts or home sciences versus math and, and hard sciences, uh, you know, because of our gender, because all of us were women. Um, and I explored that a little bit more, that question of, you know, if what I'm proposing is only attainable in an all-girls school, I asked all-girls schools and, you know, as well as those that were um, mixed. And I got the general impression that, um, and, and still believe this, that an all-girls school isn't required to um, enable the kind of um, tactics that I'm proposing. Um, and a big part of that is that feminist schools are really just about equity. Um, but it's saying that often when we think about achievement, uh, we're thinking about quality of school and quality of school has to do with, you know, how long have our teachers been trained or what is their competency in math or science or what are their certifications? Um, there's not a centering of gender equity. There's not a centering of you know, anti-sexism, of anti-racism, and the ways that we think about quality schools or the ways that we think about schools that are successful, because that's not how we measure success and achievement. Um, And it's just centering equity. And it's saying, let's look at our policies, our practices, you know, our built-in structure, um, and try to um, respond immediately to these biases that create unequal costs on some groups more than others. Um, and then make that a core part of what's required to educate our young people. Um, and, and I think that can be done across any kind of institution and in fact should be. Yeah. And there's, there's any number of reasons to, that you would imagine, uh, the achievement of boys, uh, to go up a lot in the ways that you uh, describe it in feminist schools. And, and I think that's, that's a part of, a part of the book and, uh, but a part of the book that, that, that people might not uh, initially recognize. Um, you described uh, in, in some detail what's what's going gone on in Ghana. I wonder if I could just sort of ask a broad question, which is which is how does this compare to uh, what your findings are in South Africa and also the United States? What what are the major areas of difference um, and similarity between these three very different places? Yeah. So um, part of what made me interested in doing work um, across the U.S., Ghana and South Africa was the recognition that these places are different, uh, but poverty and sexism constrains the, you know, educational experience as well as achievement in girls of girls in very similar ways. 
And I thought that that was pretty important um, and profound and needed to be discussed accordingly. So if you think about um, the U.S., it's a developed country where across multiple levels of education, girls are actually um, surpassing uh, boys in terms of enrollment as well as achievement. Um, if you look at South Africa, you see a similarity across both um you know, across girls and boys. I mean, unfortunately, there's not a lot of data counting um, those who don't identify as such in South Africa. Um, and then if you look at Ghana, you see that girls are actually um, performing at lower rates and, and aren't, and, excuse me, and aren't enrolling um, at the same rate either. And so these are places that, um, where you see differences in terms of, um, enrollment and achievement, uh, but you see the status of girls and the experiences they're having while attaining achievement to be quite similar, right? Across the board, girls are reporting experiences with sexual abuse and assault. Across the board, girls are having trouble um, being able to be in environments where the sanitary pads are made freely accessible or where they can report, you know, experiences they're having with sexism and bias and so on and so forth. Um, And it's impacting their abilities to get to, you know, access to power um, politically, you know, economically and socially. So one thing that I talk about in the U.S. often is that, you know, since the 1980s, you know, women have surpassed men in terms of college enrollment in the United States, but they're still underrepresented across every level of political, economic and social power. Um, And I think that has to do with consistent experiences with sexism, with violence, with bias that I'm seeing across the board in the U.S., Ghana and South Africa. Um, and so there are differences I mentioned in terms of the rates of that, you know, of those inequities, right? The rates in which girls enroll across these spaces, but the ultimate outcome I think is similar, um, that it really impacts their ability to penetrate power um, and to create or contribute to creating a world that is less hostile uh, toward those who aren't men, essentially. Um, and so those are reasons why I really like to compare across those places. And I want to take a moment to talk about the U.S. People often see these things as just a, you know, developing country problem. You know, um, I was excited to see that period end of the sentence um, won an Oscar, and, but it was focused on India, and, and it really led to people continuing to think that these things are just a, a problem in other countries. Um, and in the U.S., you know, the nature of it may be a little different, but it's similar. If you think about even a... Um, if you think about the topic of periods, for example, um, there's uh, often schools policies in the U.S. that are very strict around when girls can go to the bathroom or excuse me, not girls specifically, but when students can go to the bathroom. There's policies, for example, that say that you can't go to the bathroom except during lunchtime until you're like in seventh or eighth grade. Well, for black girls in particular, they experience their periods earlier. So this ends up having a disproportional disproportionate experience um, effect on uh, black girls in ways that it doesn't on others. Right. Um, or you think about native communities. Um, and there was a huge uh, story on this a couple of years ago. Um, and not even just native communities, poor communities that where they're struggling to afford access to sanitary pads and, um, and tampons. And so this impacts their ability again, still to attend school or really poor public schools um, in the United States where their public schools don't have toilet paper, right? It becomes hard then to um, be able to attend school where that's not guaranteed. Uh, So 
talking to students across uh, various environments in the United States, you see that they all have their own sort of period story, right? Or they all have their own story related to why it was why they felt unsafe as a girl um, in or on their way to school. In fact, there was a, a study that um, came out um, last year that showed that one in seven girls in the U.S. feel unsafe um, in or on their way to school. Um, there's work showing that like 70 or 80 percent of girls um, actually say that they feel like they're judged as a sexual object. Um, these are schoolgirls. Uh, so in the U.S., I think you see schoolgirls reporting high levels of um, feelings of not being safe or feeling like they don't have the appropriate materials to you know, attend school safely or comfortably. And I see those similar things in Ghana and South Africa as well. I mean, that's really why I talk about them together. Yeah, the, the book, again, uh, How Girls Achieve, uh, published by Harvard University Press in 2019. Uh, you've been hearing from Sally Nawama, who's the author of that book. Sally, thank you so much for your time today. No problem. Thank you so much for having me. I really do appreciate being able to um, share this work and uh, really be able to show how when you talk about schools, you really are talking about um, politics and political equity and making sure that all young people, especially those who are disadvantaged, have access to that. Yeah. Go out, go out and buy the book. 